Welcome to Bedtime Stories for the End of the World, a podcast where it's just gone midnight, we're missing a shoe, and the mice are becoming restless. We've assembled some of the finest poets the UK has to offer and asked them to rewrite the myths, legends, and fairy stories they want to pass down the generations, stories they want to preserve for whatever future comes next. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny, and I am delighted to say our guests this week are Anthony Anaxagoru and Chloe Elliott. Hello. Hey. Hi, how are you going? <laughs> Good, yeah. Anthony Anaxagoru is a British-born Cypriot poet, fiction writer, essayist, publisher, and poetry educator. His second collection, After the Formalities, published with Pen in the Margins, is a Poetry Book Society recommendation and was shortlisted for the 2019 T.S. Eliot Prize. It was also a Telegraph and Guardian Poetry Book of the Year. In 2019, he was made an Honorary Fellow of the University of Roehampton. Anthony is the Artistic Director of Outspoken and publisher of Outspoken Press. Chloe Elliott is a poet based in Durham, where she is currently studying English literature. There, she's president of the Poetry Society and helps facilitate workshops and runs spoken word events. Her poems have appeared in Poetry Birmingham Literary Journal, Bitter Melon, and Bad Betty's Field Notes on Survival. She is the winner of the 2019 Timothy Corsellis Prize and the 2020 Creative Futures Gold Award. First up, let's go over to Chloe. Hello. Hello there. What story is it that you've chosen to rewrite? So the story that I've gone with is uh, this old Chinese creation myth story, uh, the story of Panga, who is not a god, as I thought he was, but he's basically this guy that is stuck inside of an egg. And inside the egg, he's stuck with the two forces, a yin and yang. And he's stuck for a very, very long time. And he's growing super, super restless in the egg with the forces as well, to the point where he kind of breaks out of the egg, ruptures it, and out come yin and yang. And he separates the two of them and they sort of fall out and he separates yin and yang such that like yin becomes the earth and yang becomes the sky and his body every day grows 10 feet taller every day um, and he pushes and he pushes for what is basically 18,000 years until he makes the boundaries that exist today as uh, the earth and the sky. And I kind of love this bit, but one day he grows so tired that he just... He has a nap. He collapses. He's like, I'm done with this whole thing. And when he does, like little bits of himself degrade and kind of descend to the different parts of the world. So like one eye becomes the moon and the other eye becomes the sun. His breath becomes the wind, like his backbone becomes the mountains. And I was just super, well, for one hand, I was kind of super, super interested with the idea of like this primordial egg and the idea of it being cracked open or this idea of creation being quite a feminine thing the idea of birth or or production being um a feminine thing but obviously this myth kind of countering that and the idea that in a way there's a sort of a male birth happening um and I was kind of interested with the sort of boundaries being produced with with the creation and also sort of putting something human at the forecenter at the center of a universe where that isn't necessarily the case, although we would quite like to think it is. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Well, take it away. 10 ways to cook an egg. Poached, omelette, scrambled, soft-boiled, hard-boiled, benedict, deviled, a subset of fried, over-easy, over-medium, over-hard. One, 
A man is inside an egg. He is shaped like a god coiled up in a hammock. He attempts at breaststroke as if trying to cleave the white and the yolk. In the dark space, he goes to feel for the shell and finds a fish oil lining. His fingers brush the walls and they spasm as if under a knife, leave a residue like peach skin on his body. It is his body to spill, it is his game to spill. He cannot imagine tethering himself to another body, imagine... I can't. The man fashions a scythe out of his shoulder and separates the two bodies in the shell like splitting a head of wheat. Crack. The egg swirls like folded alabaster. Tell me everything descends from this. Two. In the beginning was the pan and the pan prompted life. It knew more eggs than this one. Still, this is the one we come back to. Sometimes the skillet comes out like a worn tyre or glazed jet in salt water. Most of it will wash away. Into the pan sputter two shins of a fish. Two warm bodies on two backs press the sides of their thighs against one another. They fight to stay at the bottom of the water, but must eventually nod up. And almost God will do everything he can to separate them. Three. Once the sky and the earth were level. The fish made love to the stars. They offered up cups of wine, their silk bellies made clinking noises they touched, sometimes squeaking, never embarrassed. Sometimes, too, the elk got caught on the seabed and then the sky. When they sneezed, their antlers would snare and rip through what looked like blue eider down. Out would come punnets of duck feather like crackling ghosts. Then a man fell asleep, died, spat the two apart, thought it was important work. He sits in the bath enamoured with himself, dreams the water bakes him like the painting of Scylla where the artist's knees become rock formations. Out of his back a mountain and six valleys are chiselled. His nose a kind of burial mound they circle to uncap the top. Hope to find the rib of a ship. As he drains the plug he can fold in his knees. Draw out his elbows such that the soap will film over and form a bubble. In years to come, he will become a series of rock pools. Four. A child is cross-legged at a teak coffee table, their bodies small enough that they must sit on a red stool. In front of them are four fingers of brown toast, enough to make a bear claw but not to clap. They stick a soldier in the yoke. Body number one makes for yin. It is too soft, intuitive, possessive, maternal. Has a good memory. Pulls at the flat end of the shell and separates from the albumen the way a manhole recovers in the snow. They tear a piece of the white. Number two is yang. Dry, restless, upward-seeking, reserved. Frequently likes even numbers. It can't spread properly on toast, but... Feels less gross to eat. Five. The yin and yang make two slates like the shin of a fish. In the fight between man and lion, man always wins. 
What kind of fight is that? How can anything not human win? When he tore the earth open, his eyes went wide. I do not care to remember if they are blue or green or agave, only to know it that in some compartment in downtown Tuscany he is pouring a jar of honey. He gives his shoulder up to God like offering a foal. In the bathroom mirror at home, he cuts his face shaving. It hangs loose by a flay of skin and outspouts the yolk. With a straight razor, he gently coaxes it off his neck. The ripple and salmon run. The sky and earth stretch like two moons or two marsh that forget one another. They lisp slightly sometimes as if to say... Six. I will jump off Egg Rock, and when I hit the water I will keep flying down. Past the fish, past the tomatoes, past the seaweed that is meant to save us all. Into the jags, the jellies, the bottoms of boot that do not complete the jump. The green astronaut that fumbles for the catch on his suit. I have enough vitriol that I spit into the water and it boils. I spit into the world and crater a lake, make a carver, sink 18 bodies of water, extinguish two wildfires, extinct six types of bug. Nothing crucial, just the ones that eat the dead. I do the work of unbecoming. I unswing 18,000 years, a man and his axe, snick a torso in half. The whole thing falls like a series of ginger snaps. I break the flights of the spirits. I never capture enough temperament. Seven. I take the egg out of the robin's nest to enhance my tenderness. A sacred gill. A screed of gall. Scared girl. Two bodies of water, neither too, too dissimilar. I will tell you a trick that consists of vinegar and a vortex. Put them in a bowl of water. The more they float, the older they are, much like a witch. Mother garnishes the eggs, presses them in vinegar like basking a body and then ladles the white. We slice cucumber for the wake. Close the lid. Eight. Ode to yin and yang before the fall. Toast to tiny joy tap-tapping the self-contained spice bottle. Solipsism of tamarind. Warm belly in the bath you carry with it. In the dark, the black and white spin together. But this is not something you can see. Only feel. Only the hot palm of your hand against a jelly lover when you squeeze. It produces rings on your fingers. Brush back and the tide takes your hand. Nine. A space burial is not to contribute to the already debris of the earth. I am scared that I am the man who tears into the belly of the beast, swipes the honey and recognises himself. Worse, he does not want to stop. The dead women are torched underneath the salt meadow and spike rush. Their sloping shoulders and small sweetheart tongues all touching just like you painted them. The holes in the carpet make for a thinly lit quilt. We look for arable soil and find an empty hive in a series of wine glasses. Rocks with prints of gills like feathers, as if the skin of a fish were run through a mandolin.
There are no antlers or ghosts, only the quiet of the tide, the steady work in dressing up a table. 10. In the end, the ratio of soldier to egg is never right. Another morning, another stamp of light. I collect the scalloped edges. They shuck my hands. For what it's worth, you can scoop the smaller bits of shell with more shell. On one side of the egg, a father boils the kettle, and on the other, a mother readies the pickling sauces. I flick this piece and watch where it lands as if to foretell some kind of instruction. Still, this is the one we come back to. When it lands on its side untouched, I do not know which to grieve. The yellow spool of creation leaves a foam that smells of sweet rot. I cannot clap, but on a red stool I'm told that two cross pieces clasp like two halves of a cello. I paint a man with the crumbs, his orange beard and a quarried shoulder. In the end, the egg has been broken and the four limbs become corners of the world. The columns are buttered, stand upright, they glisten, and cannot hold much. That was absolutely beautiful, thank you. Thank you very much. Now talk to me more about this image of the egg that recurs in so many forms throughout your piece, and it's, it's, there's this curious exploration of like the maleness of this creation moment Mm -hmm. so there were kind of two parallel stories going on for me and that I wanted to preserve what was going on with the original myth so you have Panga inside you have this man inside of of the egg and him being birthed to the world but already from the onset of that you've got the questions of okay but where where has this egg come from where has this egg just been popped into the world right like what comes first the chicken or the egg but the chicken does kind of have to come in at one stage or the other and the myth sort of skips skips that out and the kind of other parallel story I had to the already established creation myth was my relationship um I want to say my relationship with eggs, but that sounds so strange. My relationship (laughs) kind of like with food um, and like something that has always kind of stuck with me is when I was a kid, my dad used to do eggs and soldiers for me. I used to sit at the coffee table that features in this poem on top of the red stool because I was never tall enough to properly eat. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And like have the the soldiers, have the buttered toast, right? And then the egg and, and dip it inside. And... I kind of uh, was thinking about the poem when I was thinking about recreations and reiterations of it, of of what it would look like if I were to reframe things almost from, from my perspective and also from, from a female perspective. So you have a little section in there about um, like my mum preparing eggs in vinegar for a funeral. Um, And then there's also another section um, where this was actually in the workshop that we did, but one of, um, the prompts that you had, Ellie, was to have a form that was contradictory to the content. Mm-hmm. So you would have, um, for example, the ode that I have, but describing something that would be uncomfortable. So describing 
the idea of being trapped in, in a space. So what would have been quite uncomfortable for um, for Panga being trapped in, in that dark space with the two forces, but almost taking that as if as if it were an ode or a sonnet or something, as like a declaration of love and not seeing it as a necessarily contradictory thing of being trapped between two opposing forces, but seeing it as a way for, for things to kind of flow and, and mesh together. And that idea of like binaries and contradictions and of the masculine and the feminine comes up in, in terms of yin and yang as well. And there's like another bit where I talk about the stereotypes that almost emerge from those two two parts you have yang that is male and and is like upward seeking and likes numbers and then you have um yin that is female and is almost more difficult to talk about and actually in chinese culture is kind of uh seen as to be the more submissive murkier side of things and i wanted to sort of pass those two out and envision a placement where those things weren't necessarily divided or weren't necessarily in conflict with each other the poem as well yeah you talk about um creation which is obviously you know a lot of times encoded as this very feminine thing in quite violent terms in some places I think in that first bit in the first kind of section where you have Panga stuck inside the egg it's almost like he goes through all all the motions of creation without actually creating like this he he doesn't give birth in the sense of, of something is inside of him and, and he is putting that into the world. He can't imagine something being tethered to himself. And he physically, you know, that's not something that he goes through. But there's a different kind of violence sort of untappable to him, almost in the repercussions of, of what is coming out of what he descends to and what kind of the consequences are if we're kind of putting at the forefront of all of creation a masculine, a masculine figure, the repercussions of, well, what kind of sacrifices or what kind of, um, what are we trying to say we owe or who are we trying to say we owe what we do to? Mm. I, I'd love to get both of your thoughts on this, actually, this sort of instinct to put ourselves at the centre of and the beginning of the world. Like you have a lot of creation myths where you will be find things like, are the the clouds are the giant's brain and mm. the rivers his blood and that sort of thing which feels very uh, very resonant with with panga how about you first chloe i set out to try and depart or take man away from being at the center of of the poem almost you know death of the author type thing or try and detract away from man being at the center of the piece and as i did it i kind of found myself instead of uh, taking the attention or removing the attention from from the human I was just displacing it I was just displacing it to a place where actually it was just being or projecting on me um mm. and so there's this bit at the end as well where I kind of fear that I'm just doing the same thing am I appropriating the same thing am I not just creating or recreating another creation myth where I'm saying like hey hey I'm at the center it, it's so difficult to try and like with your writing navigate a world where are you appropriating something at the erasure of something else well I mean it's sort of how can we sort of write without thinking of ourselves as somehow the lens through which we experience reality I mean maybe that is just completely sort of inescapable but um, mm-hmm. what, what are you what are you thinking about about this creation myth Anthony 
what I liked, I think, the most was the numbers. What's interesting with poems that follow kind of incremental trajectory is that the more you add to the poem, as in through this kind of build-up of layering or of numbering, the more chance there is of separation. And so all the images within the poem were kind of looking to try and get away from each other in some capacity. And that's what I found quite interesting is as you kind of follow the numbering through, more and more things are trying to get away. So what begins at the kind of nucleus at the beginning, where you end up is very different. So I really enjoyed the build-up, I guess. It is a kind of crescendo, which is um, which is really interesting, having that kind of climax at the end of where things end up, which I think is actually quite Western, ironically, because, mm-hmm. you know, like a lot of, for instance, like Middle Eastern classical music, doesn't have a crescendo um i was just reading edward said uh, culture and imperialism and he was talking about this idea that western music classical music has to end up somewhere whereas middle eastern classical music doesn't it just is and I, I, yeah i thought this was kind of doing a number of things around that that's so that's so interesting because i think when we talk about story structure right. that we usually encounter through like movies and the sort of narratives that we, we you know are saturated with the three acts with like a crescendo at the end and then a final flourish or mm. things like that feels so overwhelming as to feel natural yeah but, but there is something kind of uncertain and f- like unfinite in the story that's that i feel reappeals reappeals to me yeah but is that the idea of like needing to resolve? Like I think the crescendo is this need to resolve a journey. And that's the like that's the payoff, is the big climax. Whereas poetry, obviously, as we know, doesn't need to have a resolve. It doesn't need to have a payoff in in that kind of conventional sense. So I kind of felt that this poem, that's what I mean. It it did that really well in the way in which it kind of it it circumnavigated whilst also following like a linear trajectory as well that was quite quite interesting and and quite clever I think yeah so I think that's a lovely point to go over to Anthony for another sort of creation myth uh what what have you got for us today Anthony well I wanted to focus on um the island of Cyprus where my family come from um Mm. because you know Cyprus doesn't really get a lot of airtime anywhere aside from Ayanapa um and so I kind of wanted to look at the creation myths of Cyprus and the only one really that everyone cares about is Aphrodite and I think there's a huge like misrepresentation around the myth of the legend of Aphrodite and where she came from and where she was born so on and so forth so I I looked a little bit deeper and I found there's another one we we have two actually um (laughs) (laughs) cornucopia yeah yeah exactly yeah uh go nuts fill your boots um and yeah, this one is of the Bendadaktilos mountain, which I thought was really quite fascinating because it's actually got three names. There's a name, Bendadaktilos, which is Greek, and then the five-fingered mountain in English, and then Besmark, which is the Turkish version because it's in the north of Cyprus, which is uh, under Turkish occupation. Um, and so it's got like three names, which I thought was like most of Cyprus. It kind of lives around three, four different things at once. So it made sense for me to kind of explore this uh, myth of the mountain which is literally just the mountain that has five points that look like fingers and um 
over the years, there's been various uh, uh, kind of guesses at what those five fingers might represent. And there's two kind of competing theories. <laughs> and the first one is that it was a village man. <laughs> it's always a villager um, who fell in love with a local queen. I don't understand what a local queen means um, <laughs> as opposed to like a non-local queen. But anyway, he fell in love with a local queen and he said to her, like, I want to marry you. And she was like, well, you've got to go and get me some water from Apostolos Andreas, which is like a, a famous monastery um, of St. Andrew. And um, he was like, all right, cool. I'll go and do it. But obviously she didn't expect for him to make it because it's a very perilous journey. And in those days, I mean, who knows what day it was, but in those days, it was a very perilous trip. So he did, and he got this famous water, brought it back to her, and she was a bit miffed that he'd uh, succeeded. And so she basically said to him, "Ah, sorry, mate, there's no deal. And so he got angry and poured the water on the floor, which made some mud, and then he grabbed the water and he threw it at her in his rage, and she ducked. And the mud landed on the mountains in a shape of five fingers. <laughs> and and that's basically gotcha. uh that's basically the five fingers, is that his imprint, his five yeah, of his anger. So that's one. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot to unpack in that. <laughs> you know, like you can look at patriarchy and, and domestic violence and you know, getting friend zoned and all the rest of it is all going on there. But then you also have the other idea that there was a Greek guy called Digenis who came over to save Cyprus, uh, quote unquote, save from the Saracen invaders. And uh, as, as he climbed out of his boat, he grabbed the top of the mountain because he was such a big and hefty guy. He had to grab the top of the mountain to pull himself onto the island. And that's what they have, the Bedradur Mule, which is like a, a, the stone of the Greek, basically, is what it's called, that he uh, he ended up going and using that as a as a way to board the island of cyprus yeah it's like when you don't have proper boating infrastructure just just hang on to the nearest mountain just grab a mountain don't complicate yeah, it exactly it's beautiful brilliant yeah there you go <laughs> grab onto the summit yeah in your own time we'd love to hear it all right this is called uh, mother myth we are at the point where my mother counts veils inside her age arranging baby photos and neurons into rows of sweet garlic. I want to do right under her life. I want to sit beside her and attend a thought she's struggling to release. My brother says she needs a better constitution, a more committed worldview. Two carafes of chilled baptismal water. I need a few more seconds to unclamp my ego. Forgive each teenage predilection. I'm climbing through her memory like a stone, marking her wrists with iron dowels. One year, you know, we became so poor we had to share splinters. Oh, you were a bad kid. Never could sit still. I'm in with the woodlice and jackdaws, peasants who worshipped crickets with purple clay in their blood. On this day... I worked my way up to the five-fingered mountain to watch my oldest myth die. Four sea anemones tucked in my shirt pocket for luck. My mother's fingers for God's hands imprinted on a dry massif. I reached the end of my myth in full faith. A stopped clock swung on a Persian veranda.
the room radiated urine. Stayed as the discourse of ills, my myth had nothing left to contribute. She was clearing away her body, folding down the wrinkles. With my right hand, I built the word, sorry, holding thank you back. The summit shrunk to umbilicus rind, her pulse seven navel stones in a schoolboy's duffel coat. From the sky, there was little left of us. I took all I could back down to rest on her window, a bouquet of patients, the grey protein of hospitals. This is all yours to pass on. Once upon a time, my myth decided to wear another tongue. From this day on, I'll keep an unopened tin of Cypriot olives inside my lifeboat. I'll douse bedsheets in eucalyptus for you. Never again will I turn my back on the thrum. Mother Myth reintroduced calm to this late version of history. There was only one. Your glasses brought up close. Look to where my finger wants to go. An impeachable satellite for you to curse right out of heaven. That is absolutely gorgeous reading. Thank you. Cheers. There's a lot of images of sort of powerful men or like powerful, like masculine action in like the two competing creation myths that you outlined for us. And I'm so struck by how you reach for like the figure of the mother. What what was your thinking behind that? Well, I mean, the obvious the obvious move would have been to go for the figure of a queen, but I'm not really into all that. It's a bit boring. <laughs> for me, that the, the poem's about ingratitude and about trying to appease and I think you know when I think about femininity or I think about queenliness I associate like my mum being the first kind of woman that I ever met um and that relationship to kind of the way that sons have with their mothers that they do want to appease them but then I also think that there is a contradiction within that in that we're socialized as men and we can be pretty bad to our mums and to and to women in general and so I kind of feel that the poem reckons with like male behavior and kind of looking at the ways in which gratitude and, and trying to, to win over a person more, not in a kind of intimate sense, but more as a kind of from a respect sense, but also when they die. And again, what does that death mean? Is that a death of principle or a death of the actual individual or maybe both at the same time? I think there's like several different things that are being kind of, assumed and suggested within this within this one yeah, yeah there's a, such a powerful sense of memory and kind of melancholy almost with the questions you're asking we seem to be asking through the poem of like what we preserve with the stories mm. we tell yeah that's exactly it and I, I think that it's it's exactly that and when someone dies I think I, I was reading this and I, w I read um, Didier Erebin's Returning to Reims where he talks about after his dad died he could fully reckon with their relationship once that, and James Baldwin talks about this a lot, like he wasn't able to understand his relationship with his dad until his dad had, had passed away. And I think there's, there is that my mum's still alive, but I think that there is that notion of 
obviously I don't live at the house anymore. So there is a kind of, you know, we're at a different juncture now and she's approaching 70. So she's getting into the later stages of life. I think all these things are kind of coming into the consciousness of the poem. Um, and that's really what, again, they are questions. There's nothing, there's nothing certain within that uh, inquiry. And that's really what, um, what the things are kind of pivoting around. Um, I'm so fascinated by these myths being like competing ways of like symbolically laying claim to a piece of land which is of course engaged in like a much more real and material series of like yeah. different like, political powers competing over it was that something you were was like alive for you while you were writing yeah i think so i think that was i mean with cyprus as well because it, it ha it's never been autonomous i really liked the idea of using the land and people that you know, own the land again to the the way that male ownership of women or the male kind of obsession with the mum in a very Freudian kind of way. <laughs> and so I kind of like I was I was trying to you know I was thinking a lot around those notions, and I thought Cyprus as a as a land symbolically represents this fight for things. And I, and I know that you know I read a lot about child psychology as well, and children become really possessive over their mums in particular um at, at like the age of five and six which is the age that my kid's at now and so I'm seeing kind of behavioral patterns shift again to kind of reclaim the mother in some kind of way or like a second reclaiming because you know you're now you're now more cognizant as a five and six year old than what you are as a one and two year old so um so yeah I think again all those nuances that are kind of packed into the imagery within the within the or the thinking of the poem for sure that idea of possessiveness and questioning our relationship to the land the earth really brings up a lot of the questions you will seem to be wrangling with in your poem chloe yeah i i loved listening to this because this felt like like a reconciliation of the questions that i had been asking so it almost felt like a undoing an untethering of what i had done so where i kind of like set out to see do we have the right to to see everything descend from man into the landscape this felt like the opposite so Anthony has done this beautiful like iteration of, of the land almost coalescing to the human form of it you know articulating his mother at the end of the poem and it, proving kind of the importance of subjectivity and improving the importance of having something amount to um what is so intimate and what is kind of what you do want to possess or what you wish you could possess for a longer amount of time but not almost time not allowing that um and, and trying to, to have it condense it to something concrete and that to me sounds like a beautiful place to have to end it as much as I would love to keep chatting with you both so thank you both so much Chloe Elliott and Anthony Anaxagoru for treating us with your stories of eggs and soldiers at the beginning of time this has been Bedtime Stories for the End of the World. I've been your host, Eleanor Penny, and until next time, sweet dreams and thanks for listening. This project is funded by Arts Council England and supported by the good folks at Spread the Word. Our project producer is Tom McAndrew and our podcast producer is Maya Bosworth. We have a book out also entitled Bedtime Stories for the End of the World. It's illustrated by the artist Inquisitive and published by Studio Press. 
To get your copy, you can go to our website, endoftheworldpodcast.com. There you can also explore all our previous episodes and find out more about our writers and their stories. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Goodbye World Pod.